Appreciate all the childcare workers that are out there. You know, I, I worked in the nursery last week if you weren't here. Yeah. It's a new tradition, new tradition for Mother's Day. I am the victor of all the fathers that survived the nursery. It's my little nod to the Hunger Games, right? No, it was great. Some dads work. We were, we're going to do that every year for Father's Day. We want the moms in here so your children can, can, can make it once a year. They can endure us dads. Thankfully, though, they did not require me to change any diapers. I was willing. I was willing. That was not a stipulation in my contract that went into the, uh, in the nursery. So they, they took good care of us while we were in there. So they, but the kids, they have a great time. They're their own little community in there, and it's absolutely precious. They know each other's names. Karis was going around to some of the other little girls and saying, that's such a pretty dress that you have on today. It was great, and they were just, oh, it was just, yeah, it was powerful. It was powerful. So you, you love the fact that those kids are coming to services on the weekend. They're excited to be here just like you're excited to be here because they have friends that they get to spend time with. And that one day, come on, they're going to be in the youth group together. They're going to be serving in ministry together. They're going to be the ones putting together the Life Force outreach together. All starts right there. It's not child care. It's not child care on Saturday night. It's the beginning of a foundation of a passion and a devotion to Christ that's life-defining. So we're uh, launching into a new sermon series uh, this weekend that's going to bring us up just before Father's Day. It's called 50-Day People. And we're answering the question, what does it mean to be a Pentecostal church in a modern-day world? And so to kind of get us thinking along the right direction, kind of move in your minds, we like participation here. Am I echoey? Does it sound echoey to you? All right, it's just me? All right, I think it's echoey. So we like participation here at the City Life Church. So when you hear the word Pentecostal, when you hear the word Pentecostal, good, bad, or indifferent, what are some things that come to mind? You slip up your hand, I'll point to you, and you shout it out. Chad? What's that? Rolling down the aisle. Steve? Snake handling. Where's our basket? Where's our basket? Somebody else? Somebody hands over here? Were there hands over here? Holy Spirit. Power. Swinging from the chandeliers. We've got to get some of those. And I'm going to start up here. I'm going to work my way around. Do you have your hand up? Yeah. Tongues. Fire. Uncomfortable. Nice. That's a good one. That's a good one. Uncomfortable. Somebody, hands over here. Stand. The full gospel. Somebody else. Come on. The number 50. Nice. Come on. Big hair and long skirts. Come on. She's been, she's been in some Pentecostal services in her life. Over here. Did you have your hand up, Sandy? Exciting. You guys are good. You guys are doing good with this list, Grace. Dancing. Come on. Okay, can I just say, who here, I have a man crush on David Godwin. Yep. Who, who here wants to be able to dance like David Godwin on the platform, right? I know. We should do that as a life group. David Godwin can teach the rest of us who cannot dance how to dance like that in worship. I dance like that on the inside when I'm over here. I dance like that on the inside. What's one more? Somebody else. Somebody else that was saying, if he asked one more time, I would share. And you thought you were out of the woods. Come on, somebody else. Nathaniel. A white cross with a red flame. A white cross with a red flame. Yes, I like that. I like that. This is what we want you to think of. All of those things. The good ones. We want to leave the, the bad ones behind. But this is the one we want to begin to define here at the City Life Church. This is going to be a hallmark verse for us for what does it mean 
to be a Pentecostal church? We're going to be answering this question through this whole series. But here it is. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible. Humanly speaking, it is impossible. But not with God. Everything is possible with God. Everything is possible with God. Our definition that we're going to champion as a church to be Pentecostal means to have an unshakable belief that God still makes the impossible possible. That the God that we read about in this sacred book is the God who is alive and at work in your life. It's the God that you wake up to every day. The stories that, that we read about in this book are here not to tease us and taunt us for what we're not going to have because we live in this generation. It's to give us a hope and a desire and an appetite to say, come on, God, in my lifetime, in my family, in my home, in my church. We want to see Mark chapter 10 be fulfilled in our lives, that our testimony, that our story of our life and our church to our world is that God makes the impossible possible. That God makes the impossible possible. Just a couple of weeks ago, we shared, you know, if you've been tracking with us for any amount of time, that our, the townhouse that we bought when we moved here in 2007 was built with toxic Chinese drywall, and we had to move out of that in 2009, and so the HOA was taking us to court, right? We shared about that a few weeks ago, and, and, uh, and, and they were just completely just not working with us in any way, and so we asked the church to pray, and come on, we were supposed to walk into court on Friday, and at the last minute, they had a change of heart. We did not have to go to court, and they gave us an extension for the rest of the year. So come on, you with me? It's, it's, it's you stay Stand in the face of circumstances, the attorney's telling us there's, there's nothing we can do. You know, there's, there's, there's nothing that we can do. Our response to that has got to be, come on, that's when God does his best work. That he makes the impossible possible. And that when you're facing situations and it seems like your back is up against the wall, there's, I'm not talking about consequences to foolish actions. That has a different outcome. That's a different sermon for a different time. We call it redemptive affliction here at the City Life Church. In your own innocence, when, in your own innocence, when your back is up against the wall, there's got to be something inside of your heart that says, my God is going to come through for me. But like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right, when they said when they were in the fiery furnace, even if he doesn't, come on, I will still praise his name. God is the God who makes the impossible possible. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 2. Before we get into the meat of the message tonight, we want to lay a little bit of a foundation for the series that we're going to be digging around in together. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we're going to dig into this portion of the story of the birth of the church a lot more next week, but let's lay a little foundation. It says, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. And tongues like flames of fire that were divided appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. Now, as we study through the scriptures, one of the things that we love to talk about here at City Life is that we believe in the intentionality of God, that everything that God does and did in history and is going to do in the future, he does with great intention. Nothing is by coincidence for God. Nothing, he's not lackadaisical about the, the power that he has to order the universe. So the coinciding of Jesus's life with significant moments in Jewish culture was by God's design. What does that mean? 
It means when Jesus died on the cross for my sin and for your sin, not just what he did is significant, but when it happened. Jesus died on the cross right in the middle of the Feast of Passover. Right at the height of the Feast of Passover, which is one of the greatest celebrations that God gave the nation of Israel to commemorate thousands of years prior when the Israelites were enslaved by Egypt and God, through Moses, brought some plagues down upon Egypt. We like some giveaways here at the City Life Church. Come on. Somebody brought those to me before the service and said, what do you have for the giveaway? And I said, well, I've got some things. They said, well, how about this big old bag of M&Ms? I said, oh, I'm going to work those in, right? So I'm giving those to myself, but I've got some iTunes cards for you. No. So this one, right, you're going to have to work for it. How many plagues? Well, this is heavy, right? Didn't we, we just did a sermon on overeating, didn't we? You're going to have to share this, whoever wins, with your friends. Don't eat all these. How many plagues were there? Total, Warren was the first hand that I saw. How many, Warren? Ten. I was not a man of faith, so I didn't walk all the way over until I heard your answer. Come on, you can clap for Warren. Don't be bitter. Come on. Warren's going to share those. He's going to share those. We'll have to see if he opens them in the service, right? Back when we were in the movie theater, I kid you not, back when we were in the movie theater, there was somebody that was visiting. I'm about halfway through my sermon. I must have gotten a little long, not that that's ever happened before, and I must have gotten a little long. So the movie theater was a functioning movie theater. While we were having our service, they got up, they went, they came back in, they had a big soda and a big old plate of nachos. Came back and sat down for the second half of the service. I was like, yeah, come on, I like it. We have snacks at the City Life Church. So Warren has snacks. People are going to start gravitating over. And there's some empty seats around Warren. So. All right, let's do, let's do another one. I got a $10 iTunes gift card. Somebody tell me one of those 10 plagues. One of those 10 plagues. Oh, let's come to this side. Let's do Jenna. Let's do Jenna. Come on. The frogs, yes. There was a frog plague. You should read some of those plagues. They were amazing. Kyle, you want to throw, I don't have any more giveaways, but what was one other one? The river of blood, the locust, the cattle dying, there were boils, and they were terrible. The, dark, the darkness, that was a cool one. It was dark where the Egyptians lived, but where the Israelites were, it was still light. Come on, all the plagues. The gnats, yes, they were gnats, they were flies. You can dig around in the book of Exodus and find those, but they were all great signs that God did. And then it culminates, anybody know which one it culminates? The 10th plague, Dustin. The death angel came and the firstborn of both, both man and beast passed away except for the people who took the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost of their home was a sign to the death angel that he would what? Pass over. You think it's an accident that that's the day that Jesus died was the commemoration of the great feast? When we make a decision, a vow of devotion to Jesus, say, Jesus, my life belongs to you. It is as though we're taking the blood of the lamb, applying it to the doorpost of our lives, and in the end of time, on the day of judgment, come on, God's judgment passes over us enabling us to enter into an eternity with him. It's not a coincidence about when it happened. If we understand that when it comes to his death, then we should also, it should be just as understood in the church today about what happened 
50 days later. Next weekend marks the, the, the celebration of Pentecost for the Christian church. 50 days, Penta means 50, 50 days after the Feast of Passover in, in, in Israel's culture was the Feast of Pentecost. And that was a feast where they would celebrate one of the great harvests of their land. And they would bring their first fruits as a sacrifice to God, believing that he was going to continue to provide for them through all the rest of the harvests throughout that year. It's not a coincidence that the church was born during the Feast of Pentecost because God was saying to the world then, he's saying to the world today that when there is a revelation that Jesus is the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world, there will be a harvest of hearts in the kingdom of heaven in the world that the church has got to be willing to go out and gather up and bring into community waiting for Christ's return if he does not come in our lifetime believing that because of who Christ is that we will step into an eternity with him forevermore. Everything that Jesus did and when he did it was with great intention to teach us about the relationship that we're supposed to have with him. Luke 10, 2 is when Jesus gave his great proclamation that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Come on at the City Life Church, we want to up the headcount of the laborers that are out in the harvest field helping people have a revelation of who Christ is. That's what we were doing in Oyster Point Apartments just this morning. Come on, Vanessa was saying, you don't have to come every month. You don't have to come every month, but there should be something inside of your heart that says, I want to. There should be something inside of your heart that says 12 times a year. I want to be there in that community helping those children to understand these great things that I've understood for my own life, giving them a hope not just for this life, but the life that's to come because who they're going to understand Christ to be. So when we dig around in the book of Acts, we find that there is a list of impossible things that God spoke was a result of their belief in who Christ was and the work that they began to give themselves to. This is Acts 2. You can turn over in your Bible to verse 41. I want to read some of them. It says, those who accepted his message, speaking of Peter, who gave the first message of the church, were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And then fear came over everyone, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and had everything in common, so that they sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as to as anyone as had need. And every day they devoted themselves to meeting together. Every day they came to church, right? Every day. We're just saying once a week, come on. Every day they devoted themselves to being together in the temple complex. They broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day the Lord added to those who were being saved. Come on. It's powerful. They had impossible growth as a church. They had impossible loyalty amongst themselves and to one another and to the leaders that were there, impossible community and prayer. The ones that are underlined are the ones that we're going to dig around in in this series. Impossible power we're going to take on next week. Impossible generosity is going to be the last one in the series. And then two weeks from now, we're going to talk about impossible service. And tonight, we're going to talk about impossible gathering. They had impossible worship. Come on, we have impossible worship at the City Life Church. Come on. Wasn't that a great worship set tonight? Our worship is tasked with one mission every week, 
awaken people to the abiding presence of a living God that was in this room waiting for us to come. And I hope you were awakened to him because he's here. And worship unlocks our ability to be aware of his presence like little else. Come on, a possible worship, an impossible, impossible favor. I think one of the things that's happened through this idea of Pentecostalism, through some of the things that you all shared in your own story, probably because of services that you have been in that have just been completely out of order, that was bared the name of Pentecostalism that I think just makes God sad. That, there's, that people gravitate towards all the things that are spectacular. That sometimes to the degree that people just show up at a service like God's a magician and they just want to see what kind of tricks that he's going to perform, it breaks his heart. If we're going to call ourselves a Pentecostal church, then we need to make sure that we have an appetite, even if we're not experiencing them yet, that we stand in a place of faith and say they're going to come. And a lot of these, they require hard work. A lot of these, they require sacrifice. This idea of impossible generosity, what we're going to talk about tonight, especially a possible gathering, a possible service, there, there's, not, there's not a lot that's glamorous about those things. It takes labor, like the team that has been working and planning and putting together the impossible fruit we're going to see that's going to be born out of Oyster Point apartments. It's not coming because people are hoping that something good's going to happen. It's because they're rolling up their sleeves and saying, I'm willing to do the work. I'm willing to make the sacrifice. I'm willing to be all in. I'm willing to devote myself to an impossible level of dedication. Come on, that's Pentecostalism. And when we begin to give our hearts to the work that God has called us to, to that level and that degree, I'm telling you, we're going to see him make the impossible possible. We're going to see it in our lifetime. I think another problem that we, that we have with, with Pentecostalism as it's evolved in, in many churches in our, in our modern day world is this idea that, that if it's not something that's worthy of the headlines of the Sunday paper or the Monday morning paper, then, then, then we kind of just, just slough that off to just normal stuff. I don't, I don't think God defines spectacular by the attention that the world necessarily gives it. I think he defines spectacular by the depth of degree that it has an impact to a person's life that changes them forever. I think that's spectacular. So I was talking to a buddy of mine this week. He's made a, a, a vow of devotion to Christ as a friend of mine that I used to do some crazy things with years ago. And, and, uh, and we've, we've just been talking about Jesus for, for more than 10 years now. And it was just this year that he lives in another city. He, he finally took that step of making a vow of devotion to Christ. It's a huge step for he and his family. His family's never been in church. He didn't grow up in the, in the church. And so we talk every few weeks on the phone. And so he calls me this week and, and he says, My, we were at our son's baseball game and we've been going to this church just for a few weeks now and he's going to Sunday school and he's beginning to learn something totally unchurched totally unchurched they're sitting there in the stands and they notice that the ball just keeps going to their son over he's nine years old over and over and over and over again to the point they look at each other and they say come on what's up with that how's the ball going to him every almost every play every inning right so they just they don't think anything more about it they're riding home and the little nine-year-old son from the back seat says daddy did did you notice how the ball just kept coming to me almost every play? And he said, I know, we were talking about that. He says, at the beginning of the game, I prayed a prayer. I said, God, could, could the ball come to me today? Could the ball come to me today? That, that wasn't on the headlines of the paper in his city on Monday, but it was in the headlines in heaven. That a child who's nine years old prayed one of his first 
prayers, and even in baseball, he's going to be able to look back to that moment for the rest of his life and say, there is a God who is alive and is real, who knows my name, who cares about the thing. He is, he is never going to be the same again. Is that spectacular? It's not by some Pentecostal circles definition, but for the City Life Church definition of spectacular, it doesn't get any better than that. That boy's life is changed forever, and this family is coming into a realization and a revelation that God is real, and he is alive. He's still at work doing the impossible, even when it's subtle, even when it's easily overlooked by others. We don't want to be a church that overlooks such great moments. All right, so where are we going tonight? This is where we're going. We want to be a church that causes others from the outside looking in to say about our commitment to weekly gathering, that's impossible. Let me read that again. We want to be a church that causes others from the outside looking in to say about our commitment to weekly gathering, that's impossible. There has to be a turn in our hearts at some point where we're not making a decision about whether or not we're going to come based on what's in it for us, where it turns is when we begin, Saturday is rolling around, and there's a stirring in our heart that says, I can't wait to be there because of the impact that I'm going to be able to have in the life of someone else. When that begins to be our desire, when that begins to be the value system that we begin to make decisions out of, then there's a turn in our commitment level to want to be here. Come on, they met every single day. God's just saying, come on, in our modern world, in our culture, once a week, you're getting off easy. You're getting off easy. We hear that story and we go, oh, that's impossible, right? But for many of us, the busyness of our lives, the pace of our lives, making a commitment to be at church every week, our commitment should be such that when other people look at us, they say, how do you make that happen? How is that even possible? That's Pentecostalism. That there is a desire inside of your heart that says, yeah, yeah, I get I go because there is something that happens to me. But the main reason that I go is because I have an opportunity when I'm in that room to make a difference in the life of somebody else who's there. We come because we want to have a valuing presence. We're going to see how far we get. I've got three that I want to do. We're going to start with this one. A valuing presence. There should be something inside of you that says, I can't wait to get to church because I want to have a valuing presence presence in the lives of the people that are there so who are let's do this so who are some of the first people that you met when you came to the city life church who are some of the first people that you met and then maybe if you can't remember names you can use some words that describe your first experiences here sandy april april nolan come on and you kept coming back in this thing she is she's one of the greatest greeters this church magnetic smile sherry martha sherry's over there come on sabra Amy and Jason Kearney. Come on, somebody else. One of the first people that you met, Maria? Stephanie Hocannon. Somebody else, one of the first people. Or maybe an experience, a word that defines an experience. The Nowatneys. Amanda. Christy Rogers. Come on, Christy Rogers. Somebody else. Somebody here have their hands up? Yeah. Nate and Clem. Wow, that's frightening right there. Let's just pause. <laughs> Nate and Clem. Yes, sir. Amanda, come on, that's great. Somebody else, Chuck. Yes, the Rich Shack's military party they have at the Rich Shack Resort. George makes a hamburger that will convert any vegetarian, I'm telling you. I'm telling you. What about some words that describe 
your initial experiences here at the City Life Church? Somebody, throw some just one words out to describe. Clem. What did we get ourselves into? Come on, that's right. I like it, I like it. Somebody else. Family. Truth. Steve. Rest. Genuine. Giving. Come on. Think about all those people that you met. Sherry. Say that again. Moving. All those people. Sean Bay. Come on. Come on. I like it. Come on. Keep throwing those hands up. Commitment to each other. Nice. Yes. Dustin. Home. Come on. Home. Think about every one of those names that you mentioned, that you met, saw you as a stranger across the room and said, I'm going to go talk to that person. Whether or not they understood it, whether or not they would have characterized it in these words, this is what's happened. They said, I am going to go. I want to communicate and convey value to that person. I want them to know that they matter to God. And I'm going to demonstrate that by letting them know first they matter to me. They matter to me. One of the most powerful moments in this service every week is right after the worship set when you guys begin to talk to each other. I'm telling you, God's smiling from ear to ear if he has them. I don't know. Come on. Matthew 8. Matthew 8, 1 through 4. Matthew 8, 1 through 4. This is when he, came, when he came down from the mountain. This is speaking of Jesus. Large crowds followed him. And right away, a man with a serious skin disease, which we know would have been leprosy, came up and he knelt before him saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And reaching out his hand, he touched him saying, I am willing, be made clean. And immediately his disease was healed. And then Jesus told him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses prescribed as a testimony to them. And those instructions at, instructions at the end are important because in New Anger's Bible Dictionary, I brought that tonight. If you're just beginning your journey as a, someone who's studying the Bible, this is a good one-stop, all kind of encompassing uh, research source. And here it talks about leprosy. And if you lived in Israel and you were you're Jewish, if you had this developed the circulatory disease, that's what leprosy ultimately is. It's a disease of your circulatory system. If you developed this disease, you'd have to go to a priest, and a priest would have to decide whether or not you were contagious, whether or not you had the form of leprosy that was eventually going to be lethal and was contagious. And if he said yes, then you had to go live isolated in a leper community. You could not be amongst your family, amongst the community anymore. But that, that's not where it stopped. You, whenever you came in public, you had to wear clothes of mourning to set yourself apart so that no one would come in contact with you. And if that wasn't enough, you had to keep your hair disheveled. If you were a man, your beard had to be disheveled. They had all of these restrictions that caused that person to stand out in a crowd so everybody else would get away from them. And they didn't just have to wear mourning clothes. They had to wear mourning clothes as if they were mourning for someone's death. They had to wear them torn so that they would not be mistaken for someone else who was just mourning someone's death. And if that wasn't enough, whenever they were in a public place, as they were moving through the crowd, they had to make a declaration of themselves, unclean, 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 the whole time that they were amongst other people. It's important that we understand that because that's what would have happened in this story. Here's Jesus teaching there are thousands of people thronged together. 
And even though technically, by virtue of the instructions of the Mosaic Law, the leper was allowed to be there, as long as they did those things, there were social norms that developed over time that you were just not expected to be in those types of settings. But here he comes, disheveled, morning clothes, torn, shouting from the back, unclean, unclean, and you would have just seen that crowd just begin to separate. And he would have made his way all the way to the front, and then all of a sudden, Jesus does what no one else had ever done in his entire life. He steps towards him, and he touches him. You know what he was saying to that man? You belong here. You belong here. Now, in our lifetime, we're not going to see people that walk in who look like that and who do those things and are shouting unclean, unclean. But I'm telling you what, every week somebody walks in and that's the cry of their heart. It's the cry of their heart. They might look like they have it all together on the outside, but on the inside that there is a cry that says I'm unclean, I'm unworthy because of the life that I've been living, because of the things that I've been doing, and I know that I don't belong in this place. And I'm asking you, are you going to be the one who sees that person standing by themselves somewhere in the sanctuary, somewhere out in the lobby, off by themselves in the parking lot? Are you going to be the one that pulls away from them like everybody else in the story? Are you going to be the Jesus in the moment of our modern-day world that seeks that person out, that goes, you put your hand on their shoulder, and you begin to assign value to that person, whether or not you use these words, what you're saying to that person is you belong here. It'll change their life forever. When I graduated from college, I was not yet a follower of Christ. I was bartending downtown in Richmond, and we got off work in the wee hours of the morning. I was making my way back to the car. It was probably out three o'clock in the morning, and the restaurant closed before the bar, and and uh, they had a lot of good food up there in the restaurant, and so all the bar staff would go up into the restaurant because they had all gone home, and we would borrow some of the pre-made sandwiches that were in the freezer, and they had one called the grinder. I could never be a vegetarian. I just couldn't do it. All kinds of meats and cheeses and jalapenos and on this French bag. It was just absolutely delicious. They would shrink wrap them, and then they would put them under the, under the broiler and heat them up. And so I grabbed, I'd borrowed one of those sandwiches and I had it in my pocket, and I was making my way through, through the, uh, just the deserted streets of downtown Richmond to find my car, and there was a homeless person that was laying in a, in a door jam. And, and I was not a follower of Christ at that time, but I know I felt God's voice say to me, give that sandwich to that man. And without batting an eye, I said, he can get his own sandwich. It was an ugly person before Jesus came into my life, an ugly person. God knew I wasn't going to give that sandwich to that person, but he wanted me to see myself. And he wanted to create a story in my past that I was always be able to look at and say, I needed to be delivered from who that person was and who I'm not today. And interestingly enough, that, that, that after I became a devoted follower of Christ, one of the first ministries that we got involved in is our family took on the responsibility of doing the, the feeding program in the public church service. We did a full-on hot breakfast for the homeless in Monroe Park in downtown Richmond. I'm telling you what, there were very few Sunday mornings that we got up to drive to that park to feed the homeless that there wasn't a part of me that says, I hope that person, I didn't know who it was or what they looked like, but there was a part of me, that, I hope they're in the line today so that I can feed them in the way that I didn't on that day. He gives us second chances. You have a sandwich that you bring to church every week. It's your attention. It's your affection. It's your time. Do you hurry in and hurry out? If you do, you're passing broken people along the way and you're leaving with the sandwich that you brought and it makes God sad. 
We all live busy lives. I understand. I get it. When you're planning your home project, make sure that you've got a, a plan in place to stop at the time you need to stop so you can gather with us as we gather. When you're putting together your schedule, when you're going to plan this function or that function, or putting together your schedule for your schoolwork or your homework, or the, whatever it is, right? Whatever it is that you have to do, there should be something inside of you that says, I want to be in that room when they gather together because I want to be a value-giving presence to the people that are there. In the same way somebody communicated and conveyed value to you when you first came, that you've got to be willing to live the rest of your life, that that's why you come. Come on. Philippians 2.3 says this, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble thinking of others is better than yourselves. Oh, if we would live by that. Your personality might be like mine. I'm a naturally introverted person. I have what I call cave time on Mondays, right? You might be a naturally introverted person like me. It does not give us permission to not live the life that Christ has called us to live. If you're a naturally introverted person, you do not have the freedom to come and say, well, if I were a little bit more extroverted like Vanessa, right, then maybe I could talk to more people. No, 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 no. It doesn't say in this book, okay, for those of you of this personality type, this is what I expect of you, and those of you of that person. Now, it might dictate how many people. You might come, if you're a naturally introverted person, it might just be a couple of people that you say, I'm going to commit. And it might be if you're a naturally extroverted person like Vanessa, you walk into a room like this and you say, I'm not leaving here until I talk to everyone who's here, right? Who, who, one, two, three, go here, right? Your personality might dictate to the, how many but it does not, we do not have the freedom to give ourselves permission because of my personality. I'm going to leave that work to somebody else. You have value that you can convey and give that transforms and changes the heart of someone who's here. All right, a correcting presence. Come on, you can say ouch on this one. A correcting presence. We come because we want to have a, have a valuing presence and we come because we want to if needed. We want to have a correcting presence, and we're going to talk about what that is. So let me tell you a little bit of story. This is Jamel. Can, can I just say, too, can, can, can we just be bold enough to make fun of white people for a couple of minutes? I know. Of all the cultures in the world, we got the worst names. Can I just say that? Jamel is one of the coolest names ever. How is it? Bob. George. Fred. Can I tell you, in five years, I'm going to be 50. I'm going to be so excited to finally be 50 because I'm finally going to grow into my name. <laughs> Is this not a 50-year-old man's name or what? So I made myself a new name tag tonight. Come on, I know. I'm Pastor Jamel, at least for the rest of the night. So if you know anything about our story, too, you know, we, we've spent 10 years in, in the inner city of Richmond, and one of the things that we did is that we did, like, what you were, all were doing in Oyster Point. I'm telling you, you can make a difference in the lives of kids if you just keep showing up. So we had this group of kids that, that we were pouring out our lives and investing in, and I had a bunch of the guys at, at the area McDonald's, and so I was just telling them about my family, and we were just, just talking with each other, just kind of informally, and so the topic came up about my grandmother, and they were asking me about my grandmother, this was my, my dad's uh, mother, who's since gone on to be with the Lord, and, 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 and they said, well, how old is she? And I said, well, golly, she's in her late 90s. She's in her late 90s. So Jamel, all of a sudden, his eyes get as big as softballs. They just get huge, right? 
And he looks, I mean, really frightened, really frightened. And I'm thinking, is he choking, right? Is the McDonald's getting held up behind me, right? What's, what's happening that will cause him to be so afraid? And this is what he says. This is the first thing that comes out of his mouth. She must be huge. And I said, well, what do you mean, Jamel? What do you mean that she's huge? Well, I don't, what do you mean? Well, because when I look at my brother who's 16 and I think about how much I'm going to grow between now and then, by the time you're 90, how big do you get? Right? So he's picturing this, right? This 10-foot grandmother in some house coat with a mole on her face with so much hair growing out of it, needs its own hairnet, trying to make her way to him to give him a kiss. Right? That frightens me a little bit on the inside. So I'm having to explain to Jamal, no, Jamal, there's a time in your life where you, you stop growing. You stop growing, and he's like, whoo, <laughs> right? So we laugh at that story, and we say, how, how could someone even think that? But you and I have all kinds of false thinking that's operating in our lives. We call them scripts here at the City Life Church that causes you to be afraid in ways that you shouldn't be afraid, that cause you to be withdrawn in ways that you shouldn't be withdrawn, that, 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 cause, that cause you to live a life because you believe certain things that just aren't true. And you've got to be willing to be around people who love you enough to tell you, hey, that's not right. And you've also got to be, you've also got to be a person at the table who's willing to not just sit silently, but in a loving way bring correction to false thinking to people that you're with. This is Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Galatians 2, 11 through 14. It says, but when Cephas, this is Peter, this is, this is Aramaic for Peter. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him. This is Paul talking about him to his face because he stood condemned. For he used to eat with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. And however, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. I'm going to explain that in just a minute. And then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas, I told Peter, in front of everyone, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews. What's he talking about here? Well, when the, the church was first birthed, all the people that were initial followers of Christ were all Jewish. And the Jews had very strict guidelines born out of the Mosaic law of how you could live and what you could do and couldn't do and what you could eat. And we know, right, when, when, when the apostles were, were in the presence of the Holy Spirit and the rest of the Bible was getting written, that there was a release from all those Mosaic restrictions, but people did not let them go easily because they had centuries of tradition behind them. And so there were camps that rose up in the early church. In one camp, they were called Judaizers, meaning that, that they were telling people that, yeah, being a follower of Christ is not enough. You've got to keep all of the Mosaic law. And so here's a moment where there were some Judaizers who came and Paul, much to his dismay, see Peter himself and even Barnabas Get up from the table with the Gentiles because you weren't allowed to eat with Gentiles because they would make you unclean. That's all non-Jewish people. And went and sat over with the Jewish people. And you imagine Paul in that meeting was like, oh, we're going to put a stop to this right now. 
And in front of everybody, he brings correction. So I've got a list of some people that I want to correct tonight. No, I'm just kidding. There should be something inside of us that says, if there is ever correction that I need brought to me, I can't wait to hear it. If there's ever correction that I need, I want to have friendships and be around people who love me enough to tell me the truth. I don't want to be the only one in the room who doesn't know. And there's got to be something inside of you that says, you know what? I'm willing to be the one that has the hard conversation. I'm willing to be the one that has the hard conversation. Been listening to the sermon series by Andy Stanley at the gym. It's called Christian. If you're looking for something to listen to, a podcast, it's fantastic. And one of the things he's been digging around in one of those sermons is the idea of, the, of judgment. The church is just all confused about that because a lot of Christians say, you know, it's, it's never right to judge. But that's not what the Bible says. In fact, right here in Matthew 7, 1 through 5, which is the text that often people quote that we're not supposed to judge, it's not what it says. It says if you're going to judge, you just better be careful because the way that you judge others, others is how you're going to be judged. That's what it says. It says the law of reciprocity is relevant in judgment. With the manner that you judge, the way that you judge, that's how you're going to be judged, so be careful. But it doesn't say you're not supposed to judge. And in fact, the only way is you begin to study Scripture that we're cautioned to not judge at all is for the church to judge the world. It says don't do that. Don't expect people who are not followers of Christ to live out Christianity. Why do you do that? Why? And it's, it's flip-flop, didn't it? In the church, we say to one another, hey, don't judge me. Let's judge those rotten, dirty sinners over there. And what we're supposed to be doing is say, you know what? I have a grace for them. They've not made a vow of devotion to Christ. But you, on the other hand, but you, on the other hand, the judgment that's supposed to happen in the world, it's supposed to be happening in the church. And I'm just, if we did a better job of judging each other, then most of those people wouldn't be over there because we wouldn't be the hypocrites that we have a reputation to be in the world that we live in every day. Come on. That we have to be willing to be a community of people that says, I want people to have the hard conversations with me, and I'm willing to be the one that has the hard conversation if I need to. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. The third one I'm not going to get to. I'll blog about that this week, and then you can check it out. It was having a prophetic presence. I want to wrap up this, this last one we're going to do. This is the way you do it. If you're going to bring correction to someone or someone is going to bring correction to you, these are the three pieces that are important. We do it relationally, we do it lovingly, and we do it prayerfully. So one of the questions we ask as a church, if, if somebody needs a, a conversation, one of the very first questions we ask is who's in relationship with that person, right? Because what makes it easier to receive if, if it's coming from a person that you trust? We don't have a, a correction committee here, right, that you have a badge that you get to flip out and say, I need to bring some correction to your life. When you're a true community of people that are in a relationship with one another, it's not hard to find people to bring correction into your life because you've invested in those relationships and there's people in the room that you trust and there's people in this room and there should be people in this room or whatever church that you call home that says, whatever you need to say to me, I want to hear it. I want to hear it. Relationally. And we do it lovingly. Our motivation is not to make ourselves feel better about ourselves by talking about the errors of brokenness in your life. Our motivation is not out of ego. Our motivation is not just to be right. Our motivation, right, is not to, 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 to be domineering over people's lives. Our motivation is because there is a love in our hearts for the people that are in the room with us and we just don't want to see them settling for less. Our heart breaks for them. 
relationally, lovingly, and prayerfully is an important piece because just because you know that you've got to have the conversation doesn't mean you have the right to do it. Now you've got to pray for the right moment. What if everything that God needs to say to you about areas of your life, you need correction, he met you at the door and said, let me give you all of them right now, right? You would die and we'd be having your funeral on Monday because you'd be so overwhelmed. He doesn't treat us that way. There should be something inside of us that says, am I in relationship with this person? Is my motivation love? And if we can't answer yes to these, then we disqualify ourselves and somebody else has to step in. Am I in relationship with this person? Is the motivation of my heart love? And am I praying about the timing of that conversation because the goal is not being right? The goal is to redeem. The goal is to rescue. And the when we go, it matters. It matters. All right. I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet. Thank you, God. Father, we want to be a church. We want to be a church that has such a level and degree of devotion to one another that when other people from the outside looking in sees our commitment to gathering together every single week, that they would look at us and they would say, that's impossible. Not because of what we get out of it, but because of what we bring when we come for the sake of one another. Let's worship together.
top 100 most influential people in the world. Men's Fitness hailed him as one of the fittest men on the planet. An internationally recognized endurance athlete and New York Times bestselling author Dean Carnazas, that was his picture all throughout the message tonight, has pushed his body and mind to inconceivable limits. Among his many accomplishments, just listen to these. He has run 350 continuous miles for going sleep for three nights. He's run across Death Valley in 120 degree temperatures. He's run a marathon to the South Pole in negative 40 degrees. On 10 different occasions, he's run a 200 mile relay race solo, racing along teams of 12. Dean has swum the San Francisco Bay, scaled mountains, bike race for 24 hours straight, and surfed the gigantic waves off the coast of Hawaii and California. His long list of competitive achievements include winning the world's toughest foot race, the Badwater Ultra Marathon, running 135 miles nonstop across Death Valley during the middle of the summer. He's raced and competed on all seven continents on the planet twice over. But his biggest accomplishment, that in 2006, he did the seemingly impossible by running 50 marathons in all 50 states in 50 consecutive days. 50 marathons in 50 days in 50, 50 states, 50 consecutive days. Finishing at the New York City Marathon, which he ran in three hours flat. So Vanessa asked me a few weeks ago, what are you gonna be doing in this new series? I didn't tell her, all I did was read her that, and she said, oh, that's impossible. And I said, that's it. That's our whole series that we're doing. That's our series that we believe in a God who makes the impossible possible. And that's what the world says about Dean, but who in the world is saying that about you because of the life that you're living as a devoted follower of Christ? So your mission, come on, if you'll accept it. Your mission, if you'll accept it, is that the level of your commitment to gather together with the body of Christ here at the City Life Church would cross such a threshold, would cross such a threshold that the people around you would look at you and say, oh, that's impossible. We'll see you next week.
always on time, unfailing, but never on 